Chapter Eighteen of the Promised Land. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Bridget Gage. The Promised Land by Mary Anton. Chapter Eighteen. The Burning Bush. Just when Mrs. Hutch was most worried about the error of my ways, I entered on a new chapter of adventures, even more remote from the cash girl's career than Latin and geometry. But I ought not to name such harsh things as landladies at the opening of the fairy story of my girlhood. I have reached what was the second transformation of my life, as truly as my coming to America was the first great transformation. Robert Louis Stevenson, in one of his delightful essays, credits the lover with a feeling of remorse and shame at the contemplation of that part of his life which he lived without his beloved, content with his barren existence. It is with just such a feeling of remorse that I look back to my bookworm days, before I began to study the natural history outdoors. And with a feeling of shame akin to the lovers, I confess how late in my life nature took the first place in my affections. The subject of nature study is better developed in the public schools today than it was in my time. I remember my teacher in the Chelsea Grammar School, who encouraged us to look for different kinds of grasses in the empty lots near home, and to bring school samples of the cereals we found in our mother's pantries. I brought the grasses and cereals, as I did everything else the teacher ordered. But I was content when nature study was over and the arithmetic lesson began. I was not interested, and the teacher did not make it interesting. In the boys' books I was fond of reading, I came across all sorts of heroes, and I sympathized with them all: the boy who ran away to sea, the boy who delighted in the society of ranchmen and cowboys, the stage-struck boy whose ambition was to drive a pasteboard chariot in a circus, the boy who gave up his holidays in order to earn money for books. The bad boy who played tricks on people, the clever boy who invented amusing toys for his blind little sister—all these boys I admired. I could put myself in the place of any one of these heroes and delight in their delights. But there was one sort of hero I never could understand, and that was the boy whose favorite reading was natural history, who kept an aquarium, collected beetles, and knew all about a man by the name of Agassiz. This style of boy always had a seafaring uncle or a missionary aunt who sent him all sorts of queer things from China and the South Sea Islands, and the conversation between this boy and the seafaring uncle home on a visit, I was perfectly willing to skip. The impossible hero usually kept snakes in a box in the barn, where his little sister was fond of playing with her little friends. The snakes escaped at least once before the end of the story. And the things the boy said to the frightened little girls about the harmless and fascinating qualities of snakes was something I had no patience to read. No, I did not care for natural history. I would read about travels, about deserts, and nameless islands and strange peoples, but snakes and birds and minerals and butterflies did not interest me in the least. I visited the natural history museum once or twice. Because it was my way to enter every open door, so as to miss nothing that was free to the public, but the curious monsters that filled the glass cases and adorned the walls and ceilings failed to stir my imagination, and the slimy things that floated in glass vessels were too horrid for a second glance. Of all the horrid things that ever passed under my eyes when I lifted my nose from my book, spiders were the worst. Mice were bad enough, and so were flies and worms and June bugs. But spiders were absolutely the most loathsome creatures I knew, and yet it was the spider that opened my eyes to the wonders of nature, and touched my girlish happiness with the hues of the infinite. And it happened at Hale House. 
It was not Dr. Hale, though it might have been, who showed me the way to the settlement house on Garland Street which bears his name. Hale House is situated in the midst of a labyrinth of narrow streets and alleys, that constitutes the slum of which Harrison Avenue is the backbone, and of which Dover Street is a member. Bearing in mind the fact that there are almost no playgrounds in all this congested district, you will understand that Hale House has plenty of work on its hands to carry a little sunshine into the grimy tenement homes. The beautiful story of how that is done cannot be told here, but what Hale House did for me I may not omit to mention. It was my brother Joseph who discovered Hale House. He started a debating club, and invited his chums to help him settle the problems of the Republic on Sunday afternoon. The club held its first session in our empty parlor on Dover Street, and the United States government was in a fair way to be put on a sound basis at last, when the numerous babies belonging to our establishment broke up the meeting, leaving the administration in suspense as to its future course. The next meeting was held in Isaac Malinsky's parlor, and the orators were beginning to jump to their feet and shake their fists at each other, in excellent parliamentary form, when Mrs. Malinsky sallied in to smile at the boys' excitement. But at the sight of seven pairs of boys' boots scuffling on her cherished parlor carpet, the fringed cover of the center table hanging by one corner, and the plush photograph album unceremoniously laid aside, Indignation took the place of good humor in Mrs. Malinsky's ample bosom, and she ordered the boys to clear out, threatening Ike with dire vengeance if ever again he ventured to enter the parlor with ungentle purpose. On the following Sunday, Harry Rubenstein offered the club the hospitality of his parlor, and the meeting began satisfactorily. The subject on the table was the tariff, and the pros and antes were about evenly divided. Congress might safely have taken a nap, with the Hub Debating Club to handle its affairs, if Harry Rubenstein's big brother Jake had not interfered. He came out of the kitchen, where he had been stuffing the baby with peanuts, and stood in the doorway of the parlor and winked at the dignified chairman. The chairman turned his back on him, whereupon Jake pelted him with peanut shells. He mocked the speakers and called them kids, and wanted to know how they could tell the tariff from a sunstroke anyhow. We've got to have free trade, he mocked. Pa, listen to the kids. In the interests of the American laborer. Hooray, listen to the kids, Pa. Flesh and blood could not bear this. The political reformers adjourned indefinitely, and the club was in danger of extinction for want of a sheltering roof, when one of the members discovered that Hale House, on Garland Street, was waiting to welcome the club. How the debating club prospered in the genial atmosphere of the settlement house. How from a little club it grew to be a big club, as the little boys became young men. How Joseph and Isaac and Harry and the rest won prizes in public debates. How they came to be a part of the multiple influence for good that issues from Garland Street. All this is a piece of the history of Hale House, whose business in the slums is to mold the restless children on the street corners into noble men and women. I brought the debating club into my story, just to show how naturally the children of the slums drift toward their salvation, if only some island of safety lies in the course of their innocent activities. Not a child in the slum is born to be lost. They are all born to be saved, and the raft that carries them unharmed through the perilous torrent of tenement life is the child's unconscious aspiration for the best. But there must be lighthouses to guide him midstream. Dora followed Joseph to Hale House, joining a club for little girls which has since become famous in the Hale House district. The leader of this club, under pretense of teaching the little girls the proper way to sweep and make beds, 
artfully teaches them how to beautify a tenement home by means of noble living. Joseph and Dora were so enthusiastic about Hale House that I had to go over and see what it was all about, and I found the Natural History Club. I do not know how Miss Black, who was then the resident, persuaded me to try the Natural History Club, in spite of my aversion for bugs. I suppose she tried me in various girls' clubs, and found that I did not fit, any more than I fitted in the dancing club that I attempted years before. I dare say she decided that I was an old maid, and urged me to come to the meetings of the Natural History Club, which was composed of adults. The members of this club were not people from the neighborhood I understood, but workers at Hill House and their friends, and they often had eminent naturalists, travelers, and other notables lecture before them. My curiosity to see a real live naturalist probably induced me to accept Mrs. Black's invitation in the end, for up to that time I had never met anyone who enjoyed the creepy society of snakes and worms, except in books. The Natural History Club sat in a ring around the reception room, facing the broad doorway of the adjoining room. Mrs. Black introduced me, and I said, Glad to meet you, all around the circle, and sat down in a kindergarten chair beside the piano. It was Friday evening, and I had the sense of leisure which pervades the schoolgirl's consciousness when there is to be no school on the morrow. I liked the pleasant room, pleasanter than any at home. I liked the faces of the company I was in. I was prepared to have an agreeable evening, even if I was a little bored. The tall, lean gentleman with the frank blue eyes got up to read the minutes of the last meeting. I did not understand what he read, but I noticed that it gave him great satisfaction. This man had greeted me as if he had been waiting for my coming all his life. What did Mrs. Black call him? He looked and spoke as if he was happy to be alive. I liked him. Oh, yes. This was Mr. Winthrop. I let my thoughts wander, with my eyes, all around the circle, trying to read the characters of my new friends in their faces. But suddenly my attention was arrested by a word. Mr. Winthrop had finished reading the minutes, and was introducing the speaker of the evening. We are fortunate in having with us Mr. Emerson, whom we all know as an authority on spiders. Spiders! What hard luck! Mr. Winthrop pronounced the word spiders with unmistakable relish, as if he doted on the horrid creatures. But I, my nerves contracted into a tight knot, I gripped the arms of my little chair, determined not to run, with all those strangers looking on. I watched Mr. Emerson, to see when he would open a box of spiders. I recalled a hideous experience of long ago, when putting on a dress that had hung on the wall for weeks, I felt a thing with a hundred legs crawling down my bare arm, and shook a spider out of my sleeve. I watched the lecturer, but I was not going to run. It was too bad that Mrs. Black had not warned me. After a while, I realized that the lecturer had no menagerie in his pockets. He talked, in a familiar way, about different kinds of spiders and their ways, and as he talked, he wove across the doorway, where he stood, a gigantic spider's web, unwinding a ball of twine in his hand, and looping various lengths on invisible tacks he had ready in the doorframe. I was fascinated by the progress of the web. I forgot my terrors. I began to follow Mr. Emerson's discourse. I was surprised to hear how much there was to know about a dusty little spider, besides that he could spin his webs as fast as my broom could sweep them away. The drama of the spider's daily life became very real to me as the lecturer went on. His struggle for existence, his wars with his enemies, his wiles, his traps, his patient labors, the intricate safeguards of his simple existence, the fitness of his body for his surroundings, 
of his instincts for his vital needs. The whole picture of the spider's pursuit of life, under the direction of definite laws, filled me with a great wonder, and left no room in my mind for repugnance or fear. It was the first time the natural history of a living creature had been presented to me under such circumstances that I could not avoid hearing and seeing. And I was surprised at my dullness in the past, when I had rejected books on natural history. I did not become an enthusiastic amateur naturalist at once. I did not at once begin to collect worms and bugs. But on the next sweeping day I stood on a chair, craning my neck, to study the spider-webs I discovered in the corners of the ceiling, and one or two webs of more than ordinary perfection I suffered to remain undisturbed for weeks, although it was my duty as a house-cleaner to sweep the ceiling clean. I began to watch for the mice that were wont to scurry across the floor when the house slept and I alone waked. I even placed a crust for them on the threshold of my room, and cultivated a breathless intimacy with them when the little grey beast acknowledged my hospitality by nibbling my crust in full sight, and so by degrees I came to a better understanding of my animal neighbours on all sides, and I began to look forward to the meetings of the Natural History Club. The club had frequent field excursions, in addition to the regular meetings, at the seashore, in the woods, in the fields, at high tide and low tide, in summer and winter, by sunlight and by moonlight. The marvellous story of orderly nature was revealed to me, and fragments that allured the imagination, and made me beg for more. Some of the members of the club were school-teachers, accustomed to answering questions. All of them were patient. Some of them took special pains with me. But nobody took me seriously as a member of the club. They called me the club mascot, and appointed me curator of the club museum, which was not in existence, at a salary of ten cents a year, which was never paid, and I was well pleased with my unique position in the club, delighted with my new friends, and raptured with my new study. More and more, as the seasons rolled by, and page after page of the book of nature was turned before my eager eyes, did I feel the wonder and thrill of the revelations of science, till all my thoughts became colored with the tints of infinite truths. My days arranged themselves around the meetings of the club as a center. The whole structure of my life was transfigured by my novel experiences outdoors. I realized— with a shock at first, but afterwards with complacency, that books were taking a secondary place in my life, my irregular studies in natural history holding the first place. I began to enjoy the natural history rooms, and I was obliged to admit to myself that my heart hung with a more thrilling suspense over the fate of some beans I had planted in a window-box than over the fortunes of the classic hero about whom we were reading at school. But for all my enthusiasm about animals, plants, and rocks— for all my devotion to the Natural History Club, I did not become a thorough naturalist. My scientific friends were right not to take me seriously. Mr. Winthrop, in his delightfully frank way, called me a fraud, and I did not resent it. I dipped into zoology, botany, geology, ornithology, and an infinite number of other ologies, as the activities of the club, or of particular members of it, gave me opportunity. But I made no systematic study of any branch of science— at least not until I went to college. For what enthralled my imagination in the whole subject of natural history was not the orderly array of facts, but the glimpse I caught, through this or that fragment of science, of the grand principles underlying the facts. By asking questions, by listening when my wise friends talked, by reading, by pondering and dreaming, I slowly gathered toward the kaleidoscopic bits of the stupendous panorama 
which is painted in the literature of Darwinism. Everything I had ever learned at school was illumined by this new knowledge. The world lay newly made under my eyes. Vastly as my mind had stretched to embrace the idea of a great country, when I exchanged Polotsk for America, it was no such enlargement as I now experienced, when in place of the measurable earth, with its paltry tale of historic centuries, I was given the illimitable universe to contemplate, with the numberless aeons of infinite time. As the meaning of nature was deepened for me, so was its aspect beautified. Hitherto I had loved in nature the spectacular, the blazing sunset, the whirling tempest, the flush of summer, the snow-wonder of winter. Now, for the first time, my heart was satisfied with the microscopic perfection of a solitary blossom. The harmonious murmur of autumn woods broke up into a hundred separate melodies, as the pelting acorn, the scurrying squirrel, the infrequent chirp of the lingering cricket, and the soft speed of ripe pine-cones through dense-grown branches, each struck its discriminate chord in the scented air. The outdoor world was magnified in every dimension. Inanimate things were vivified. Living things were dignified. No two persons set the same value on any given thing, and so it may very well be that I am boasting of the enrichment of my life through the study of natural history to ears that hear not. I need only recall my own obtuseness to the subject, before the story of the spider sharpened my senses, to realize that these confessions of a nature lover may bore every other person who reads them. But I do not pretend to be concerned about the reader at this point. I never hope to explain to my neighbor the exact value of a winter sunrise in my spiritual economy. But I know that my life has grown better since I learned to distinguish between a butterfly and a moth, that my faith in man is the greater because I have watched for the coming of the song-sparrow in the spring, and my thoughts of immortality are the less wavering because I have cherished the winter duckweed on my lawn. Those who find their greatest intellectual and emotional satisfaction in the study of nature are apt to refer their spiritual problems also to science. That is how it went with me. Long before my introduction to natural history I had realized, with an uneasy sense of the breaking of peace, that the questions which I thought to have been settled years before were beginning to tease me anew. In Russia I had practiced a prescribed religion, with little faith in what I professed, and a restless questioning of the universe. When I came to America I lightly dropped the religious forms that I had half mocked before, and contented myself with a few novel phrases employed by my father in his attempt to explain the riddle of existence. The busy years flew by, when from morning till night I was preoccupied with the process of becoming an American, and no question arose in my mind that my books or my teachers could not fully answer. Then came a time when the ordinary business of my girl's life discharged itself automatically, and I had leisure once more to look over and around things. This period coinciding with my moody adolescence, I rapidly entangled myself in a net of doubts and questions, after the well-known manner of a growing girl. I asked once more, how did I come to be? And I found that I was no whit wiser than poor Reb Leba, whom I had despised for his ignorance. For all my years of America and schooling, I could give no better answer to my clamoring questions than the teacher of my childhood. Whence came the fair world? Was there a God after all? And if so, what did he intend when he made me? It was always my way, if I wanted anything, to turn my daily life into a pursuit of that thing. Have you seen the treasure I seek? I asked of every man I met. 
and if it was God that I desired, I made all my friends search their hearts for evidence of his being. I asked all the wise people I knew what they were going to do with themselves after death. And if the wise failed to satisfy me, I questioned the simple, and listened to the babies talking in their sleep. Still, the imperative clamor of my mind remained unallayed. Was all my life to be a hunger and a questioning? I complained of my teachers, who stuffed my heads with facts, and gave my soul no crumb to feed on. I blamed the stars for their silence. I sat up nights brooding over the emptiness of knowledge, and praying for revelations. Sometimes I lived for days in a chimera of doubts, feeling that it was hardly worth while living at all if I was never to know why I was born, and why I could not live forever. It was in one of these prolonged moods that I heard that a friend of mine, a distinguished man of letters whom I greatly admired, was coming to Boston for a short visit. A terrific New England blizzard arrived some hours in advance of my friend's train, but so intent was I on questioning him that I disregarded the weather and struggled through towering snowdrifts in the teeth of the wild wind to the railroad station. There I nearly perished of weariness while waiting for the train, which was delayed by the storm. But when my friend emerged from one of the snow-crusted cars I was rewarded, for the blizzard had kept the reporters away, and the great man could give me his undivided attention. No doubt he understood the pressing importance of the matter to me, from the trouble I had taken to secure an early interview with him. He heard me out very soberly, and answered my questions as honestly as a thinking man could. Not a word of what he said remains in my mind, but I remember going away with the impression that it was possible to live without knowing everything after all, and that I might even try to be happy in a world full of riddles. In such ways as this I sought peace of mind, but I never achieved more than a brief truce. I was coming to believe that only the stupid could be happy, and that life was pretty hard on the philosophical, when the great new interest of science came into my life, and scattered my blue devils as the sun scatters the night damps. Some of my friends in the Natural History Club were deeply versed in the principles of evolutionary science, and were able to guide me in my impetuous rush to learn everything in a day. I was in a hurry to deduce, from the conglomeration of isolated facts that I picked up in the lectures, the final solution of all my problems. It took both patience and wisdom to check me and at the same time satisfy me, I have no doubt. But then I was always fortunate in my friends. Wisdom and patience in plenty were spent on me, and I was instructed and inspired and comforted. Of course my wisest teacher was not able to tell me how the original spark of life was kindled, nor to point out on the starry map of heaven my future abode. The bread of absolute knowledge I do not hope to taste in this life, but all creation was remodeled on a grander scale by the utterances of my teachers, and my problems, though they deepened with the expansion of all nameable phenomena, were carried up to the heights of the impersonal, and ceased to torment me. Seeing how life and death, beginning and end, were all parts of the process of being, it mattered less in what particular ripple of the flux of existence I found myself. If past time was a trooping of similar yesterdays, back over the unbroken millenniums, to the first moment, it was simple to think of future time as a trooping of knowable todays, on and on, to infinity. Possibly, also, the spark of life that had persisted through the geological ages, under a million, million disguises, was vital enough to continue for another earth age in some shape as potent as the first or last. Thinking in eons and in races, instead of in years and individuals, somehow lightened the burden of intelligence, 
and filled me anew with a sense of youth and well-being that I had almost lost in the pit of my narrow personal doubts. No one who understands the nature of youth will be misled, by this summary of my intellectual history, into thinking that I actually arranged my newly acquired scientific knowledge into any such orderly philosophy as, for the sake of clearness, I have outlined above. I had long passed my teens, and had seen something of life that is not revealed to poetizing girls, before I could give any logical account of what I read in the book of Cosmogony. But the high peaks of the promised land of evolution did flash on my vision in the earlier days, and with these to guide me I rebuilt the world, and found it much nobler than it had ever been before, and took great comfort in it. I did not become a finished philosopher from hearing a couple of hundred lectures on scientific subjects. I did not even become a finished woman. If anything, I grew rather more girlish. I remember myself as very merry in the midst of my serious scientific friends, and I can think of no time when I was more inclined to play the tomboy than when off for a day in the woods, in quest of botanical and zoological specimens. The freedom of outdoors, the society of congenial friends, the delight of my occupation, all acted as a strong wine on my mood, and sent my spirits soaring to immoderate heights. I am very much afraid I made myself a nuisance at times to some of the more sedate of my grown-up companions. I wish they could know that I have truly repented. I wish they had known, at the time, that it was the exuberance of my happiness that played tricks, and no wicked desire to annoy kind friends. But I am sure that those who were offended have long since forgotten or forgiven, and I need remember nothing of those wonderful days, other than that a new sun rose above a new earth for me, and that my happiness was like unto the iridescent dews. End of chapter 18